Hey there, folks. Dan Figella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring you the intersection of technology and psychology. And we've had some uh, fantastic philosophers and authors on board with us here on the podcast. Not terribly long ago, we had Nick Bostrom uh, on the, the show after his book, Super Intelligence. And today I'm lucky enough to have another fellow from the UK, uh, who's originally actually from the United States, interestingly enough, uh, the Big Apple, Mr. Uh, Professor Stephen Fuller at the University of Warwick. He is the author of a book that many folks might uh, recognize the title of, Humanity 2.0, and also a newer book called The, the Proactionary Imperative about sort of political involvement in the, the transhuman realm. And today we're going to be speaking about just that. Uh, Steve, how are you? Hi, fine. Fantastic. Glad to have you on. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit off mic about, you know, the first question I really wanted to dive into, and, and, uh, and I had seen you in a, in a documentary a little while ago, and I figured that this would be a nice little uh, initial jump-off point to get your perspective. Um, there's a lot going on in, in, the, in the transhuman realm in the coming decades ahead that we might pre predict or project in terms of biotech and gentech and brain-machine interface and uh, artificial, uh, real or artificial intelligence. Um, in terms of what matters uh, today most, in terms of determining our trajectory, in terms of uh, transhuman concerns that maybe more folks in politics or just in the general public should be concerned about, um, what do you think are kind of the biggest deal points now, the, 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 uh, the frontiers of research that, that maybe we should really have our eyeballs on that might make the biggest difference uh, soon? Well, I think, uh, to put it in a phrase, I think that the aspect of transhumanism that's of most direct political relevance now, and this is something I think some uh, science policymakers have already picked up on, though I think rank-and-file politicians have not, uh, is this aspect of human enhancement. Um, and um, in a sense, when we talk about that within transhumanism, we're usually talking about the idea of extending human uh, life expectancy, not only in terms of sheer number of years, but in terms of being healthier and more productive, um, and, and some people, like Aubrey de Grey, say that we could potentially live a thousand years and so forth. I mean, we don't have to, at the moment, contemplate that possibility. But I do think that there would be some very important political and economic issues that could be directly addressed if we were able to, uh, you know, re-engineer the genome or do something, uh, as it were, significant to transform the human condition to enable people to, let's say, be able to work and live another 10 and 20 years so they don't have to pull pensions so early. I mean, those of us who live in welfare states, for example, there's an enormous crisis of the mounting numbers of old people and who often, very often don't live, uh, you know, in the healthiest uh, of, of lives, this but nevertheless true. live a long time. Yep. And it's going to be interesting to see who exactly is going to subsidize this in the future. Now, one long-term solution to this, of course, is for people to live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. And the human enhancement aspect of transhumanism actually directly deals with this point. Um, and, and I think this is one reason why, and, and perhaps your, your, your listeners may not know this, that back in 2002, uh, the U.S. National Science Foundation uh, put out an enormous kind of prospectus on the future of science policy in the post-Cold War era, and it, and it had human enhancement as its focus. And the, and the long-term agenda was going to be to somehow for the government to provide incentives for people working in biotechnology, information technology, nanotechnology, and cognitive science, and we would say more recently neuroscience, yeah. uh, to actually work together to be able to enable people to live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. And that would substantially address, in a very fundamental way, a lot of the economic problems that I think especially people in the developed world 
are facing now, but I think would also help the developing world as well. And that's something that doesn't even yet get us to the sort of farther reaches of what transhumanism is. No, is not at all. In. Yeah, not at all. But in terms of uh, in initial political involvement and, and, and uh, topics to bring to the fore, for you, those kind of grander, um, almost economic and sociological questions would be sort of the, some of the first to maybe shed light on in terms of real political relevance? Well, yes, and I think that's kind of the way policy... See, because there are science policymakers both in Washington and in Brussels who are kind of aware of this, right? I mean, and so there is this... So their question is very much like the question you've posed to me, namely, where do we begin along this trajectory in a way that's politically tractable? And it seems to me that is a politically tractable way because, you know, everybody's worried about you know, the issue of the mounting number of older people, right, who will be living longer lives after retirement, but not necessarily in a healthier state. And and this is a real problem, I, I would say, for young people, because the young people are going to have to pick up the bill on this. Yeah. So there's a sense in which there's a kind of potentially cross-generational coalition here supporting this idea of human enhancement. Huh. Okay, okay, got it. So now when you say politically tractable, I think that's an interesting term. Um, because, you know, and, and this is a topic of, of great interest for me, you know, although the further reaches of transhumanism and, and all the various ethical ramifications, not just of longer life, but I mean of, of a literally enhanced kind of sentience and, and capacity, um, uh, there, there's, there's so many of those factors that, that seem like they'd be so important, but of course, in order to bring them to the fore, in order to uh, shine light on them, in order to make them relevant, we have to be able to sort of tie them to where we might be able to have a tangible influence now, tie them to um, areas of focus that clearly matter to people now. When you say politically tractable sort of domain of, of the transhuman transition, um, is that what you're referring to, finding, finding a way to make it sort of palatable and understandable and fit into our current concerns in a way that it actually can be brought up in a serious fashion and not sound like, you know, oh, this guy just likes science fiction movies? Well, yes, exactly. And in fact, in, in, in the proactionary imperative, the context in which I talk about the promotion of transhumanism is as a kind of welfare state 2.0. Uh, I mean, again, this might not be so apparent to Americans, but in the European side, uh, the welfare state had has in, in all the different countries that have, have had them in Europe, the, the, the centerpiece has always been the health service, okay, the health system, and, and the idea that, as it were, the human capital of the country is really the most important thing that the state needs to be concerned about. And it seems to me that's a very good intuition, and that needs, in a way, to be given a 2.0 boost. And this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about here, because everybody benefits from everyone being able to live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. Now, that's what makes it politically tractable. One of the problems, however, with a lot of the kind of other issues associated with transhumanism, so like the issue of being able to enhance our cognitive capacity, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, with these brain-computer interfaces, all these other things that you were alluding to before, one of the problems is those innovations, however attractive and however important they be in the long term, will immediately pose a problem of, 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 of increasing the amount of inequality that already exists in the society. Oh, of course, yeah. Right? So there's a sense in which those kinds of issues, even though I do think those issues are very much ultimately on the table and do need to be addressed, all these kind of farther aims of transhumanism, yep. and I'm broadly in support of them, actually, I think what they will do when you put them on the political agenda is immediately to raise the red flag of inequality. And yeah. I think that's going to be an issue that transhumanists have to be able to face much more squarely than they currently are. 
Huh. And, and, and explain to me what you, what, where, when you say face more squarely than they are, I think, you know, there, there are the techno-optimists who are, aren't just optimistic about technology being aggregately beneficial, but are uh, of the belief that uh, these technologies will be, you know, within a certain span of years, as cheap and accessible to anybody as they are for everybody. And, you know, just like cell phones, you know, the people on welfare will have, you know, really cool smartphones and they'll play Angry Birds and Snapchat with each other, uh, just like the, the really wealthy folks might. And, um, and that you know, maybe the same thing would be the case with um, other, you know, genomic technologies or, or whatever the case may be. So w when you say addressing more seriously than they are now, do you mean to imply coming up with a little bit more tangible strategy around how to avoid that imbalance and really address sort of the rollout yeah. of these technologies in a serious way? Yes, yes, yes. That's right, because I think if you look at the history of, uh, of, of capitalism that, that, that is being alluded to in the examples that you give, right, where something, a new product that starts off as being quite expensive and only a few people can have access to eventually becomes a kind of mass market item, um, very often there has had to be uh, state subsidy and otherwise state support in order to actually provide the incentive for the capitalists to actually make that democratic move. Okay, uh, because uh, it, it's it, and, and if you look at Silicon Valley, I mean, this is one of the great untold stories about Silicon Valley. Has been the amount of government money that had that in the very early stages of its development actually went in to enable all of these tech entrepreneurs to flourish. Yeah. Um, and and so this is where I think you're going to need some. This is where I, you do need to get the policymakers and the politicians on board with this to actually figure out what will be the means by which these new innovations actually do manage to disseminate to the mass public and not just become the preserve of certain elite groups. Because I do think that is part, that is a legitimate worry that a lot of people have about these transhumanist innovations if we just operate in a so-called free market environment. Yeah, yeah, is that, is that some folks uh, will, you know, be the smarter and the better and so will their offspring potentially in some way, shape or form and, and, and that, you know, the, the people working away at day-to-day -day jobs who don't have the access, you know, monetarily or otherwise, would be, uh, would be left behind. I think those are serious concerns. Um, so for you, thinking more and more about, um, or having, having transhumanists or, or having kind of emerging tech folks uh, think more ardently about how would we plan this, roll this out, map this out in a way where yeah. it doesn't just go to the guy that can fork over half a million bucks to get this procedure or two million bucks to get this procedure, whatever the case may be. That, that's, that's right. And I think here we get to an issue about the, uh, about the current politics of transhumanism. In other words, uh, you know, if you ask your, your garden variety transhumanist who is in Silicon Valley doing something, what is his or her politics, it's most likely to be libertarian and anti-statist. So in other words, there is a tendency at the moment for um, transhumanists to think about the state and government as just obstacles right, uh, to what would other otherwise be this kind of free kind of flow of innovation and progress and stuff like that. But historically, these things do ju ju just do not flow by themselves. You actually need the state there as a partner to actually enable everyone to benefit from it. Um, and, and so in this respect, I think that, you know, transhumanists, insofar as they are libertarians by inclination, need to take a much more constructive approach when dealing with the state. Yeah, and I think there's some folks that are thinking about that. I mean, uh, James Hughes, the IET, who was actually an interview here with us maybe two years ago, 
and a number of other people who really do think ardently around where policy and governance plays a role. There's actually a conference I'll be going to at ASU called the Governance of Emerging Technologies. Oh, well, um, see, those guys, yes. See, now those guys at uh, you're ASU. Arizona State yep, University, ASU, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, those guys... They, uh, they, that, that whole center that they have there for considering those matters was, in fact, one of the consequences of that 2002 NSF document that I started by talking was about. Was it? Wow, go figure, uh, oh, you know. Oh, yes, uh, because one of the, one of the things that, that the NSF had scoped out was that there's going to be a need, you know, so let's say it's going to take 25 years for all these innovations to kind of come on stream. They're not going to happen tomorrow. Nevertheless, you need to have already on board a public conversation about what the potential implications are in terms of the kinds of things that people will hope for, what they are afraid of, and then to begin to, to, to address them, not necessarily in the sense of being able to solve all the problems, but as it were, to normalize the problems as part of what's discussed in political discourse. So that after a while, you would hope that politicians would start to, as it were, incorporate some of these items as agenda issues on which they would take various stances. Got it. Okay. Now, that's curious. I'm going gonna, gonna to have to take a little bit more uh, homework time myself to figure out this 2002 NSF uh, document you're referring to, which I was actually unaware of in terms of that. It's called converging converging technologies. That's the kind of short title by which it's converging known. technologies. Interesting, converging you know. Technologies. I mean, that's, that's where that phrase comes. Yeah, that's from. more uh, that's more governmental uh, attention to this matter and, and and ardent focus on this matter than I, I had actually thought had existed. Although I'm, I'm. Oh yes. Oh, it's no, no. People have been on top of this. Uh, I mean, because look, from the government standpoint, there there are a lot of issues here, right? I mentioned already the economic one. But you also have to think in terms of uh, the redeployment of the science budget at the end of the Cold War, okay? So if you think about, I mean, again, I don't know if you, if you know the history, but during the Cold War, that was a kind of golden age for government-based science funding, which collapsed as soon as the Cold War ended. Um, and, and so there was this attempt on the part of the government to uh, kind of come up with a new vision, right, in the post-Cold War era for what science can do for the nation. And this was it. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm, I will. Uh, I'll be doing my homework on that for sure. Um, so, just to sum up on that on that question, Steve, it sounds to me as though uh, the kind of politically salient matters of the day that that we may be able to kind of get on the docket and into the grander conversation, and that might make the biggest difference from kind of a transhumanism and, and emerging tech uh, side, at least for now, might be the economic factors and life extension uh, factors. So, longer, longer, healthier, productive lives. Essentially, I mean, it sounds as though life extension and its and its economic implications seem to be the best sort of forerunner for transhuman concerns in politics today. Yes, if I'm not that's mistaken, what I, that, that's what I would for say, you. Yes. Okay, got it. Understood. So that's just it's interesting to glean as many perspectives as I can. Speaking of which, you know, I know a lot of folks uh, who who are um, interested in transhumanism and and uh, you know aiming to live longer, more productive lives in, in the sense that, that you had mentioned there, um, have alluded to the fact that there, there's some aggregate belief by some of those folks that, um, and, and I think it's actually rather plausible, that uh, in, in days of old, we may have leaned on the notions of eternal fulfillment and life in a kind of uh, religious dictate and in a kind of religious book and that we may have been able to find those comforts and, and sort of that making sense of the world through that particular lens and that with that lens maybe falling to the side for some people, uh, transhumanism and, and the prospect of enhancing life uh, 
may in fact be sort of a replacement for what they otherwise may have leaned on in a, in a different way. This is the perspective of, of some folks. I don't know if it's necessarily wrong or right. Similarly speaking, you know, um, I know that there are a number of, you know, religious groups, and I couldn't name them offhand, but I'm, I'm certain, uh, who, shucks, I mean, may not be all that cool about kind of tinkering around with our brains and, and making us live forever and all that. I mean, I'll be frank with you. Uh, you know, there's got to be some of those folks that really see that as about as sacrilegious as sacrilegious gets. Um, you know, you being a religious fellow yourself and, and also obviously being interested in transhumanism and in its political ramifications and, and sort of the aggregate well-being of, of humanity here, um, how do you see those two interacting? Do you think it is sort of a, uh, you know, something to lean on for the folks that don't have religion? Do you see religion embracing it as the scientific community sort of has seemingly begun to? Um, what are, what are you know, how do you see the connection between religion and transhumanism? Okay, that's a that that's a big question, but I think it's a fair question for me because uh, in the Proactionary Imperative and all the other books that I've done with on Humanity 2.0, I actually put this issue very much in the center. Great. Um, and um, first, let me say, in terms of my so-called religion, um, I think the best way to characterize me uh, that'll make sense to your listeners is I'm a kind of heretical Christian. Okay, which is to say, I'm not a churchgoer of any sort, but I am very sympathetic to. Uh, to the general ideals of Christianity, and and one of the key features of Christianity that distinguishes it uh, as a religion, even within the Abrahamic religions, is this idea that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. Yeah. Okay. And uh, this is uh, this in the New Testament is called theosis, and it refers to the moment where Jesus realizes he's the Son of God. Okay. Now it seems to me that this idea, again, a heretical reading of this idea of this idea actually opens the door to transhumanism. In a sense, that's kind of the short answer to what the what the connection is between religion and transhumanism, is that actually human beings are privileged creatures in the Christian religion. Okay, they have a kind of godlike character which they lost at least temporarily in the fall. Okay, and so then there's this big question about well, how do you get beyond that? How do you get you know how do you rise again? Um, and in a way, science starting in the modern era in the uh, 17th century, was put forward as a heretical answer to that question, you might say. This is like the right? Francis Bacons of the world and the birth yes, of modernity exactly. and all that. Francis Bacon. It's not by accident that you know Francis Bacon not only wrote the, the first main books on the scientific method, but as Chancellor of England, he, was, he also presided over the production of the King James Version of the Bible, right? The first mass-produced English version of yep. the Bible. Those, you know... The two things went hand in glove as far as he was concerned, and this is a common view that you find with Newton, you know, you find it uh, with all the other major figures of the scientific revolution, was that the way in which human beings will uh, regain their, their divine status will be by trying to get into the mind of God, and that phrase is still used by physicists today, even atheistic physicists like, like Stephen Hawking, uh, that would be the way you would do it. Right, that you would try to, as it were, try to get this kind of godlike, comprehensive understanding of everything, and that isn't just to be included at the cognitive level, like our theories of physics try to do, but also potentially at the technological level. And this is where most of transhumanism operates in terms of enhancing human capacities, in terms of enabling humans to get around either through communication or transportation. So part of the transhumanist agenda also has to do with our ability to inhabit the whole universe potentially yeah. um, and it seems to me that this is very much tied to kind of the motivation 
that actually launched the scientific revolution as a heretical Christian movement in the 17th century. And so in this respect, you know, the period that goes from the scientific revolution to the Enlightenment, right to the modern era, to transhumanism, is pretty continuous. I don't see as much of a break. I see it as pretty much part of the same, you know, kind of the same mentality operating, only becoming increasingly secularized. Got it. And so do you see in the future as, you know, it's... I believe it's safe to say, at least to some degree. I mean, I've certain certainly noticed the uh, the increasing sort of drumming up of, of these matters in in the last, let's say, five years or, or certainly ten years myself. Um, do you be in, among among folks who maybe are not religious per se? Do you do you see more and more uh, by the book religious folks? Again, I know you had mentioned a little bit more. You know, you, how you define yourself in terms of your relationship with Christianity. Do you see the more sort of uh, you know the, the the Baptists of the world, the Protestants of the world, the Catholics sure. of the world. Do you see them aggregately warming up to this notion of shucks? We should be more God-like now. Yes, I mean, I, th I think um, I don't think it's that hard actually. Um, and um, you know, so Catholicism is the religion that I was raised in. Uh, there is this uh, heretical Jesuit figure who's actually got still quite a big cult following called Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who uh, was uh, in a way a kind of transhumanist in his interpretation of things. But even within you know, the Protestant churches, um, I'll just draw your attention to the Mormon church. Okay, The Mormon church is probably the biggest private uh, funder for biomedical research in the United States. Okay, uh, and if you and, and these guys are very serious about trying to create a heaven on earth, right? They are the Church of the Latter Day Saints, and there is yeah. a Mormon transhumanist association. Okay, wouldn't surprise me. You know, and 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 I think that there's a sense in which, when you start to look at the way Protestantism developed in the modern era, so the Mormon Church is only from the middle of the 19th century, yep. after all. Um, right there, you do already start to see these various cohabitations between a kind of materialistic science, right, and the spiritual ideals of Christianity. In a way, it's already kind of there, okay? Now, it's true that a lot of the more traditional conservative Christians won't go on board with this. And I think, uh, you know, um, we were talking off-air about George W. Bush's bioethics panel, which, which, prevent, which uh, stopped federally funded stem cell research in the United States in 2004, this was a galvanizing moment for the transhumanist movement. Yep. Well, the people who were on George W. Bush's panel, a lot of them were very traditional religious people. Yep. Uh, and they did talk about issues of, you know, going where human beings shouldn't be going, you know, kind of sacrilege. God yeah, playing, playing God, exactly. Stay that way, yeah. you know, this kind of stuff. But, the, but in a sense, you know, the horse is already out of the barn. Human beings have transformed themselves so much over the past 40,000 years of civilization. When we talk about, you know, nearly tripling the life expectancy and then, you know, everything else, that in a sense we have already transhumanized to a large extent. Oh, yeah. So, so you believe that more and more religious communities will wake up to this idea and, and maybe even that more and more Christian folk who are, you know, uh, traditional conservative Christian folk – may see the congruence of the future of technology and the enhancement of humans with uh, the, the dictates around, you know, being in the image of, of God. And that, and that maybe, just as we have with the science community, more and more religious people. I mean, it's, it's funny to imagine sermons about this, Steve, you know? Well, you know, in the late 19th century, uh, it was actually, it was not uncommon 
uh, especially among the more liberal Protestant uh, denominations in the United States, to actually hear sermons where where science and religion were in fact quite amalgamated. And in fact, uh, you know, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, John D. Rockefeller, yes. okay, John D. Rockefeller was a Baptist, certainly was, um, and he was also you know the founder of the largest private foundation to to, to influence science in the twentieth century, the Rockefeller Foundation. Yep. You know, he had a theologian there who was basically in charge of dishing out the funds, okay? And this guy was pretty liberal, okay? I mean, I think people kind of often kind of, uh, they have a kind of skewed understanding, you might say, of, of, of exactly uh, just how liberal Christianity can be with regard to matters of science. Huh. So, okay, interesting. And, and you believe more and more so people will come to see the congruence here and, and wake up to it and maybe be on board um, in a way that, uh, maybe George Bush's folks uh, in 2004 weren't. Yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, I think though there is an issue um, that 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 in a way is nagging, a sort of nagging issue in the background, which in a way uh, would lead lead me to give uh, some some credit, as it were, to the people who are the, the religious people who are skeptical of transhumanism. And I think when when these guys uh, believe that we're violating human nature or something like that. What they're really pointing to is, in fact, the enormous amount of risk that is involved as we do these transformations of ourselves. Yep. Because after all, you know, even if you increase people's life expectancy, let's say only by 10 years, it's not at all clear what the overall social consequences of that are going to be, right? And also we don't know what other, you know, other kind of side effects this might have. You see, so there is a kind of, with transhumanism, with all the innovations that transhumanists are, are proposing, and, you know, the brain-computer interface, that's even, you know, in a way more risky, um, all of these things open up all kinds of possibilities where we don't know what the outcomes are. We it's a kind not, of Pandora's yeah. box situation. It is. And I think these religious people, though they're talking about the Bible and original sin and all that kind of stuff, in a sense they've got their finger on something that in a sense transhumanists need to come cleaner on, which is the enormous amount of risk that we, in fact, will have to be willing to undertake to enable all of these innovations to come to pass. Yes, and, and hopefully we'll have a, a way of managing them in, in, in a way that's aggregately best, although that will certainly be one of the, the more difficult decisions given the variety and... and uh, well, that's and, and, why you need the government involved, frankly. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of folks that would be on board in agreement with you, and I'm, I'm more than fascinated with... Uh, with policy, with relate, with relation to emerging technology and transparency, in addition to around sort of where we're taking ourselves. Steve, I realize we're a little bit over time, and I did not want to interrupt that question because uh, I knew you'd have some some uh, insight on there that we've not really been able to touch upon in the podcast thus far. I appreciate that. If people want to learn more about you, I know we had referenced your books. I'm sure some people have already seen Humanity 2.0. Maybe some of them have uh, seen the Proactionary Imperative as well. Uh, if they want to find you online, maybe learn more about uh, this particular area, where would they go on the web to find you? Huh. Well, I have a homepage at the University of Warwick, uh, but of course pe and people will then be able to find what my email address and everything is, and okay, I'm, I'm happy to be contacted by people who cool. have questions and things. Very good. And, and Steve, uh, as my closing question, because this is always a fascinating topic for my folks, um, anybody, or is there, are there any sources or particular researchers um, that you really admire and draw from in terms of your own understanding around this, how to, how to take our best swing for the future of humanity here. Are there folks that you tune into that you might recommend anybody interested in this topic would also want to go and explore? Wow, that's interesting. Um, 
I imagine, I imagine that, that that rabbit hole goes pretty deep, but I figured you'd have some favorites that might be fun books for, for our well, folks look, or websites okay, that'd be useful. One thing that, that I think it would be useful for your, for your listeners to, to pick up on, uh, because I think otherwise they might not find out about it, is the fact that there is a Russian version of transhumanism, okay, that's called Cosmism, right? So C-O-S-M-I-S-M. Um, and, and there is a book... Uh, that has been written uh, on the cosmists, as they were known. And these are guys who basically started off as Christians, and in a way were arguing sort of the way I was just arguing in response to your question. Yeah. Um, but these guys took transhumanism uh, in, the di- in, in very radical directions. So they were very much about resurrecting the dead, for example, yep. you know, like the cryonics people are today. Um, they were very much about human beings inhabiting all of space. And in fact, the whole motivation for the Russian space program, which of course led to that great space race with the United States in the 1960s, right, that came from those guys, okay? Uh, and they're called the Cosmists. And, and so there's a whole range of these thinkers from the, from the middle of the 19th century uh, to basically the recent past. Um, and there is now a revival of these guys uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union, in, in the Russia, um, and, and in a way, it's interesting to see the similarities and differences of the kinds of agendas that they were proposing, because uh, they did have some influence on the Western thinkers, uh, especially in the early 20th century. But to a large extent, I think today's transhumanists in the English-speaking world don't know anything about them. Curious. Okay, so that might be uh, an interesting little domain of, of uh, you know, another, another branch almost. You know, I, I think about it almost like sports, like so many different cultures I came up wrestling in high school, and it's like there's the native Mongolian wrestling, there's wrestling in Africa in different sports, there's you know folk style wrestling in the U.S. And you'd think, you know, in, in the transhuman world, that there'd be various sects with various sort of proposed value sets and directions and influences. And I think that drinking in more of that hopefully will be useful for our folks yeah, I too. Mean, there is a book. Uh, there's a book published by Oxford called The Russian Cosmists by a guy named George Young. George uh, and that's probably like the one-stop shop to find out what all these people were about. I like it. I like nothing better than getting distilled distilled insights from folks on the show about where to get more distilled insights. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast here at Tech Emergence. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, Uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, You can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.